Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 75th episode of the Truth Island podcast. If you've ever stood in a crowded subway or walked the streets of New York, you might have said at one point or another, gee, there's just too many people around me right now. While everyone has felt claustrophobic from time to time, such as standing in a crowded elevator, could the population density of a given area actually make you value people a lot less? Take, for example, the way in which you interact with people at a large party. Have you ever noticed that perhaps you value people that you are talking to less and less as the number of people in attendance increases? Juxtapose this experience to when you are taking a long walk with a friend and each of you is giving each other their complete and undivided attention. In life, sometimes more options does not always lead to better outcomes, as why should anyone cherish another person when a long line of other people are always waiting to be tagged in? Globally, there are 7.8 billion people inhabiting the world as we speak, more so than at any other time in history. However, a good question we might want to start asking ourselves is more really better or perhaps a return to a more quieter and intimate form of community might enhance our personal relations. Helping me to determine if we can cherish large bundles of people, I am once again joined by Alexander. Alex, if there were 10 people on this podcast right now, would that mean you would value good old Aaron a lot less? <laughs> uh, no, I don't think the quality of the conversation, you know, the quality of our relationship together would suffer. But I do think that the amount of depth in the conversation regarding your exact point of view and my exact point of view and how those two point of views may refract from each other, that would take some sort of quality hit. But, you know, there's always an argument where if, if you bring in multiple voices, you get multiple point of views. But I really think it's just a matter of measuring depth taking a wider strategy as opposed to a, a you know, a tall strategy, um, a more vertical strategy where there's two individuals getting deep into the nuance of a particular conversation and finding exactly how far that rabbit hole goes. Yes. I mean, let's take the merits of a large party. So at a large mar party, you're talking to people for five to 10 minutes. And I've actually been told, hey, man, you know, you may want to socialize over there. It's good to, you know, talk to everybody at least for a few minutes. But what you lack is any form of depth. Most of those conversations remain at the very surface and at the very superficial level at a, at a very large party and in gathering. And I've, I've always been awkward in large party situations because we're really talking about nonsense. We're not really getting to know one another. We're just, you know, everyone in that room becomes a check mark. Did I talk to that person? Oh, yes, I did. Five minutes, check mark. Oh, I talked to her, check mark, right? All of these interactions that you have at a party just become giant check marks. And I'm like, well, is it better to have like 30 check marks at the end of an evening or to have three huge check marks because you actually had deep conversations with, with, with just a few number of people, but at a very deep level. I would say it definitely depends on your motives. I mean, I think you and I both share that we are a little bit more on the deeper check mark list than on, uh, you know, trying to be effervescent for everyone in the party. But, you know, there's definitely been times where I've been in a party and I'm there to network almost. Mm. We're touching base with everybody to kind of give this pseudo plastic version of myself in order to push an agenda. Maybe I have a movie coming out or a particular recording or some sort of conversation. In those moments, I try to touch as many people as I can uh, with conversation. Um, that sounded kind of odd way to say it. I no. try to touch everyone I can. In <laughs> no, New, New York, no, no, New York definitely makes you do this, even if it doesn't feel the most comfortable. What I'm actually regretting the most, and, and this is something that I, 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 like, if I have one piece of remorse, it's this. I think back to times in my early 20s where I was like at parties or at bars, and maybe I was having a great conversation or the potential for a great conversation was there, but I didn't cherish that person because I just said in the back of my mind, okay, this is a great conversation, but there's other interesting people here. Let me just gamble. Let me just roll the dice and move on to the next person. And nine out of 10 times, 
I was never able to recapture that glory. Like I, I, I gambled away that great conversation to multiply and talk with more people, but chances are like that one conversation that I kind of sacrificed was probably it. And if I had just stayed with that one conversation, I probably would have left that evening a lot more fulfilled. I'm so glad you brought this up because this has really been a thought that has been weighing on my shoulders in terms of how I've spent my life. I think it's more significant to affect one person in this world so profoundly, they change their life for the better. And I ask myself, have I been trying to pursue that singularity of purpose where if I could just change one person profoundly, fundamentally, did I leave this planet doing something that I totally respect? And then I juxtapose that towards the whole social networking uh, strategy that we, we all employ. Yeah, We all have our social media personality. It's all there to try to touch as many people as we can. Uh, once again, <laughs> poor choice of words, to affect as many people as we can. And you know that's what we've been taught. That's, that's what we've been taught to value. But the reality is, is that there's so many lost people in this world. If I could just help one of those people feel less lost, let me tell you, that to me is a life well lived. Yes. You know, this actually reminds me of a lesson that it took me a while. I'm, I'm a slow learner, but eventually I learned this when I, when I was teaching is a lot of teachers are like, I want to save every kid. I want to save them all. They're all just marshmallows that I need to save and so forth. And okay, you're a teacher. You got 34 kids in a classroom times five. That's 100, like almost 150 kids. What I figured out very like maybe mid love mid midpoint in my career is like, screw it. I'm going to pick 10 kids that I can save out of, out of this. And I know that seems pretty grim. Like the statistics on this are really bad, but I was like, there's about 10 kids that are actually listening to me right now. 10 kids that I can really, really, really save. And that was the, like when I, when I was really searching for meaning or really trying to, to stay in the game, I just would focus on those 10 kids, sometimes five kids, sometimes in, in a classroom, only one kid. I was like, I would literally just look at one kid while I was teaching. And I'm like, yeah, I'm here for you, man. I'm not here for these other 33 clowns that mm -hmm. don't want to learn or whatever. And that sounds ridiculous, right? It actually sounds ridiculous. But, but I like what you just said, that we try and touch everybody and we end up touching nobody. But if we just try to touch one person, well, we can at least go to bed at night knowing we touch that one person. I think that's really what it comes down to. And a lot of people find that passion in their children. You and I, uh, at the moment, don't have kids. Yeah. So, you know, we're looking towards external forces to figure out how we can dispense wisdom to help somebody else. I mean, that's part of the, I imagine the inspiration for this incredible podcast and the incredible ensemble of voices you've put on. So you're saying I is, started this podcast because I don't have kids. <laughs> <laughs> or, or I'm saying this podcast is your kid. Yeah. It's right a, now. It's a child, right? Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, you pour love into it, right? Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's a really good point that, um, and I, I kind of like that about us as humans. I think like there's a lot of negative things that I find about us, but this is actually one of the positive things is that each of us, even, and we're both men, right? Like people, oh, well, you know, you know, women have the maternal instinct or whatever, but even, even us, we have a paternal instinct to some degree where we want to like take care of somebody or take care uh, uh, of a younger generation or, or, or so forth. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And this kind of goes back to a conversation I had with Kenny in the sense that when you produce art or when you try and touch people, you have to just accept that your art or what you're saying is only going to land on a lim limited number of ears. And that's okay. You just, you can't compromise what you're doing um, you know, I kind of think of the um, teacher that like pretends to be in, you know, be interested in hip hop or whatever's trendy to, to, to appeal to their students. They're like, yeah, well, I want to I want to get everyone's attention. I'm gonna and I'm like, no, sir, you're just betraying who you are to kind mm -hmm. of get more likes, you know, and, and I see I see this happening a lot. And I'm, I'm sure it happens a lot in social media where people pretend to be into stuff or they say outrageous things to get a reaction. And okay, maybe it works in the short term game that like more people pay attention to them. But then I'm like, are you really touching anyone? And 
that's coming at a cost. You're actually compromising your soul and you're actually compromising your authentic self. Ooh, yeah. And you don't know you're compromising. A lot of the times I don't realize when I'm compromising myself. And it's only until after the deed is done do I look back and say, oh, that's interesting. You know, it was a subtle degree change. And now after an extended period of time, I feel quite distant, distant from the intended pathway that I was trying to take in the first place. And, you know, you ask yourself, what, did, what do I need in order to not do that twice? And then it brings it back into the singular. You know, it's not like, what does the world need for no one to do that? So I wonder if there's a congruency in terms of just our neural programming into having one person be affected and the viability of us being able to affect one other person. I mean, it brings up a lot of like mentorship questions. Yes, yes. And I think, I, you know, I, I, I see it this way. We, and this even goes back to our quality versus quantity kind of discussion is that every, we, we, when we're kind of trained to like have massive wave impact, right? Affect as many, and we have, and it comes from our like our warrior mindset of like conquer, 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 convert as many people as possible. And a great analogy of this, I don't know if you ever watched the film, um, with um, Michael Keaton, he plays Ray Kroc, the founder of McDonald's. You ever- Oh, great, great movie. Yeah, great, great movie. And I love Michael Keaton, great actor. And yeah. I remember he's there with the McDonald's brothers, right? And the McDonald's mm-hmm. brothers are like, listen, man, we take our shit seriously. We want the best milkshake. We want the best burgers. We want quality fries. We wanna have a quality customer service experience. And the Michael Keaton guy, Ray Kroc is like, well, I just want to expand. I just want to make all the McDonald's humanly possible. I want I want a McDonald's every on every corner of the earth, right? And the first time I saw that film, I was like, yeah, well, Ray Kroc's the man. Like Michael Keaton's the man right there. You know, he's like he's like tearing down walls and stuff. But now that I think of like the legacy of McDonald's, yes, it's a multi-billion-dollar company. Yes, a lot of people have gotten really rich. When we think of McDonald's, we don't have warm, tingly feelings about it for the, for the most part. We don't think of like, oh, McDonald's, it has a place in my heart. Whereas I think that that, that original McDonald's probably did create like everlasting memories and everlasting impact. So that's kind of a shift that we have to make in our mindset of like, do you want to produce a bunch of crappy like McDonald's where like the bathroom hasn't been cleaned in five days and, and so forth? Or do you want to have one McDonald's that is like a high quality experience? This particular time in my life, it's the answer is one. And I think the older I get, the more it is one. This whole manifest destiny approach that capitalism has, it, it, and it all, it really seeps into all forms of society. I just don't think that's healthy. It wasn't healthy for me. Now there's definitely somebody who's going to be listening to this podcast and be like, okay, then I'll do that. And I'll make a hundred million dollars and then I'll change my family's life. And it's like, okay, yeah, you can do that. But does that really hit those levers in the human body and the human soul where I can die happy and content? And really, I think about that, you know, I've been really asking myself, what is the meaning of being alive? And how do I focus on the inevitability of my death? And what am I leaving behind? And this whole sense of legacy is, okay, well, if I can change one person before I leave this world for the better, then I feel like the the time that I've been here was well spent. I would rather my one McDonald's, I would rather steel cut fries, a real (laughs) burger, lean mean yeah because you know it's funny is that you know now that we even think of the idea of fatherhood it's like the kid probably remembers the the burger that dad made on the grill on fourth of july like that's probably what sticks in the kid's memory it's like oh yeah my dad you know had this propane uh grill or whatever that they remember they don't remember like the thousand lousy burgers that they had at mcdonald's and i think (laughs) i i think that that's what what needs to happen is that we need to realize that like impacting few people right in a really substantive way is going to 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 leave you with a much better feeling and is actually going to make a, a more genuine impact i'll give you even an example now alexander the great you know obviously we've um you know he doesn't have like the best 
uh, like rap right now. Like, like obviously he's done a lot of horrible or whatever deeds, but Aristotle put all of his energy in like tutoring Alexander the Great, like one dude. Okay. Now, yes, he was like a future king and all that other stuff, a really important dude. But just think about that. Like one teacher had that much impact over one student, right? Whereas if Aristotle had been like, yeah, Alexander the Great, like I'll tutor you uh, next Wednesday. I got to go tutor these other princes and kings right now. Well, like, would there have been that like huge growth? Would there have have been like this, this, this like monumental, like, um, you know, occurrence? I, I don't know. I probably not. I would argue that Alexander the Great, someone that I study often, would have been an absolute tyrant as opposed to how I view Alexander the Great, which is a <laughs> liberator and really an addict of glory um, and an addict of that kind of. Uh, that kind of uh, challenge. You prefer to live on the knife's edge. If it wasn't for- Are you saying Aris- that because you have the same name? <laughs> no, 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 no. Can't compare us. Um, you're way better, you know, man. It, you're, you're way better. Uh, okay, thank you. I'll take that to the bank. Um, we'll see how long that lasts. So I would say that Alexander the Great wouldn't have freed Egypt if it wasn't for Aristotle's teachings. I don't think Alexander the Great would have married Roxanne if it wasn't for Aristotle's teachings. The fact that he had that liquidity in terms of what was expected and somehow followed a somewhat moral line, I would say, in terms of being a warrior king mm. in the ancient era when, you know, if you did something wrong, it was just biblical what happened to you and your family. He was pretty loosey-goosey. He was pretty liberal with all of that. So. I would say because of our knowledge of Aristotle and the things that he believes, his impact on Alexander, the one person he changed, might have impacted hundreds of thousands, if not millions. Yes. Yeah. You know, and it's funny because when I think of my own teaching career, the most rewarding moments in my teaching career were actually not when I was standing in front of 34 kids. It's actually when I tutored a kid one-on-one. Mm-hmm. I actually found private tutoring to be that much rewarding because one, the kid has nowhere to run, right? The kid, the, the kid can't just run away and get distracted with like the guy sitting behind him or whatever. It's like the kid is like, dude, who are you going to talk to here? It's me and you put your phone away. Like you, you, there's no, you know, you can't get lost in something else. Cause it's just me and you in this room right now. And that's yeah. really powerful to be alone with somebody in a room is the most empower, like one of the most powerful encounters that you can have because when you're talking to somebody one-on-one, there's nowhere for them to run. And this is this is really important because when you're at a party and you're starting to speak about the truth, right? <laughs> truth, to capital T, very dangerous. Uh-oh. When you start speaking about the truth at a party, Oh yeah, hey, hey, I, I gotta go, man. Or oh, oh, the, the, uh, my, you know, Samantha's calling me. See, you know, gone, right? But when you're on a date or you're one-on-one with a person, it's a they they can make some stupid excuse and escape, and, and probably a lot of people escape using their cell phones. But it's a lot more difficult. It's a lot more difficult to run away from your problems, and it's a lot more difficult to run away from a person when when the encounter is one to one. That's a profound fact, right there. Not being able to run away or squirm away from the reality of the words being spoken. That is definitely an enormous factor. I mean, um, stopping power, stopping power behind truthful words is an incredibly important aspect of communication. And you're right. How many different universities pride themselves on the, the size of their classrooms? We don't go over 23. We don't go over 22. You know, we're a blue ribbon school. We don't go over 18 students per classroom. I mean, Statistics show that classrooms that have fewer people in the actual auditorium or in the classroom consistently have better grades. So, you know, there is some sort of measurable difference between having this stopping power behind what you're teaching and what you're saying. Yes. I, when I, you know, I think back to my, my days at Hunter College, and this happened a lot in my 101 classes where we would be in a huge ass auditorium with 300 kids and one instructor 
that you were a number, man. You were a number to that instructor. There was no, there was no mm-hmm. like, hey, Aaron, that was a really good point. It was like random dude in the blue shirt in the tenth uh, row over there. You know, like there's no, there's no intimacy and there's really no impact because. I, on one hand, don't get to know my instructor on an intimate level. I don't get to, to develop any, and they don't get to know who I am. I'm just a, I'm just a dot in the blob of the auditorium, right? Mm-hmm. And that that probably has a lot less impact than a class of like ten kids. And then, then when you think about it, like, you know, as you go up in academia, the classes become smaller and smaller and smaller. And, and the idea behind that, I think, is to build a greater senses a, a, a greater sense of uh, intimacy. Mm. It's so important to have intimacy, yeah, because it, it connects different frequencies. It's not just you're hearing what. Oh, there's such a huge difference between hearing what someone is saying and feeling what someone is saying. Yeah, right. Because it hits you on a different dimensional level. So it's not just auditory learning. It's not just kinesthetic learning. It's all of those boxes checked to a point where your entire being is aligned with the message being delivered. Mm-hmm. And then you have these aha moments. There's a creation and an inspiration when you actually soak in the words and the meanings behind what people are saying. And I think that's more easily attributed on a one-on-one. Yes. Yes. I actually, I just spoke to somebody who, who explained that he had watched all of these like Bible lecture series online, right? Through YouTube or whatever. And he was like, yeah, okay, I learned something new. But then he actually went to like a Bible study group in person where there's like literally like eight people in a church. And and again, I'm not trying to push religion or anything. I'm just using this as an example in that when there's people looking at you, right? Because when you're interacting with a screen or you're interacting with YouTube, that person can't look back at you. They can't make eye contact with you. Now that YouTube clip might have, you know, like a billion views or something crazy like that, but that's not going to actually change people as much as being in a room with like 10 people who can actually make eye contact, who can actually answer your questions there in the moment. Like when, when you ask a question and the instructor or the person talking, you'd be like, it's a great, that's a great question, Alexander, and actually uses your name. And, mm-hmm. you know, it looks you in the eye and tells you what is it they think that actually has the potential to pivot you. Whereas when you're watching the YouTube clip, that person doesn't know that you're watching the YouTube clip. It's like, it's like, it's like people who go to the movies and then yell at the movie screen. It's like, you realize that, you know, the actor doesn't <laughs> know you're here right now. <laughs> That's not true. Iron Man can hear me. No, I'm just <laughs> You know, what's interesting is that on movie sets, a lot of times the types of shots that some actors have to be involved in, the camera zoomed up on their face, they're delivering their line to one other person, no one else is involved in a shot. A lot of the times the other actor that they're talking to isn't even there, right? Mm. And what's interesting is that the real pros, the ones who care and know that there is a different kind of communication when they are present are there to look them eye to eye. And it's these little things that we aren't taught in school. Like we think messages as emails or a letter, but there's all this information from just eye contact. Yes. That that people don't discuss. Like it, they don't believe it's a tangible thing, but really what it is is it's two strings connected to each other's mind and you're subconsciously sending energetic messages to one and the other is subconsciously sending energetic messages to the other. And I believe Nikolai Tesla studies this a little bit in terms of two human beings and the energy being delivered between two and how that can transfer messages. But we don't discuss that. I mean, being in person is a biological need. There is, there is a history of evolution that we have followed through by eye contact and being in person thousands of years since the beginning of time but no one talks about it like it's a real thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the reasons, like, look, I would love to do podcasts in, in real life, but there's, you know, at the very least I say, um, you know, when I'm doing an episode with somebody, I'm like, you need to have your camera on, man. We got to look at each yeah. other. We got to see each other's face and see our, each other's reactions. And like, okay, is in-person probably more authentic and better? I'm not, I'm not arguing that. Probably it, it, it's a lot better. But at the very least, we need to be looking at one another. We need to be feeling that feeling that exchange of ideas and feeling that exchange of energy. And mm. 
when you're surrounded by too many people, you just, you're unable to do that. Even one thing, and, and maybe since you have a little bit more experience in the acting world, I've always heard a, a, like one technique that actors employ is find one person in the audience and see if they're bored. So when you're, when you're doing a theater production, I've heard this technique of like, just stare at one person in the audience, see if they're laughing, see if they're bored, see if they're yawning, and just use that one person as a gauge because it's impossible to track like a hundred people in the audience at once. But if you're just tracking one person, then you know if your performance is landing or not landing. Well, it's interesting. I think that that's more of a stand-up thing because you okay. know the whole concept of the fourth wall in theater is you don't want to break that. My entire focus is on the person I am doing the scene with, because once you remove the consciousness of what you're doing, it becomes a habit of just being. Mm -hmm. And when you're in the habit of just being, your um, attention span isn't on how you have one shoulder a little bit more tense than the other, and you feel kind of frozen in time, and you feel like you have to statue into this position to project something. The reality is, is that there's about 10,000 different layers of communication that human beings go through, through their body, through their voice, through the way they look at people, the amount of times they, they bob their head or shake their head, the, the length of eye contact, all of these things. It's all in a human body. So really it comes down to connecting one-on-one. -on -one. I don't even bother with the audience unless you know I was directing a show or something that actually involves them. But most performances in theater, the whole point is to not even be aware that they're there or even be aware that the camera is there and to hone in one-on-one -on -one into those things that we're talking about that kind of eye contact that communication and only be considering not necessarily focusing on because focus implies intentionally putting energy but to just be there uh, to to receive that information to synthesize the information organically and then to return um, some sort of response, you know? I love that, man. I think that's incredibly insightful. And if there's any actors or actresses listening, this is incredibly insightful because you're taking it even a step further. Like don't even focus one on one dude in the audience, focus on the person that you are talking to in that scene and then pretend as if that scene is real and that there is no camera, there is no audience, there is no director, there is no applause, there is no booing. All of that stuff doesn't really matter. You are literally in that scene and the only person that matters is yourself and the person that you're speaking to, unless it's one of these like uh, monologue kind of plays where you're just uh, talking right. about yourself for, for two hours. <laughs> yeah. You know, 90, 98% of the work is before you even get on stage Yeah, because you have to digest the character, the information, the needs, the fears. And also you need to immediately let that go. And it's striking that balance between capturing that information, putting it into your character while not letting it rule your performance is the difference between people who behave on screen and people who act on screen. You can always find the actor. Right. Mm. You always can hear that line where you're like, OK, this person, you know, isn't a very uh, could use some work on their on their craft. Right. Or you hear a line like, you know, you can't handle the truth. <laughs> right. And it's just it sits. Yeah. You know, and I think I think that that actually, you know, what I know about Jack Nicholson is, is he's not the friendliest guy in the world from from what I understand. You know, he has <laughs> he has he has in, even in real life, he has attitude. But that's what I think makes him such a great actor is that he doesn't really give a shit about what the audience thinks. He doesn't really care about like he like he's not one of these actors that if he was probably doing a theater performance that he would freeze up and be like, oh, my God, the guy in, in row B2 is, is, is yawning right now. Oh, let, let me pivot and change. He's probably like. I don't really care what the guy in row B52 thinks. I'm Jack Nicholson and I'm going to deliver this performance the way that I want to. And exactly. that's, that's kind of magical. And I think going back to our analogy with the party, I think that we kind of compromise our authentic self to appeal to a wider audience. And I'll give you a really good example of this is we've always been at parties where we probably laughed at a joke that we kind of found to be distasteful, or maybe we, we even made a joke that we mm -hmm. later regretted saying. 
And, you know, after we make that joke, we think back and be like, man, that wasn't the real nicest thing to say. That dude is actually going through a really rough time or whatever. And why did we do that? Why did we make that inappropriate joke? We wanted more laughs. We wanted more people to think that we were funny. We wanted more people to, to be entertained by us. So I think in those moments, we compromise our authentic self to get more laughs and, and, and for people to think of us in a higher esteem. But what actually ends up happening is we end up thinking a lot less of ourselves at, at, at the end of the day. Well, I think this goes back to our original point. In my experience, since I've taken a break from New York City, I've had more time to feel the length of my thought frequency, Hmm. if that makes sense. Because it doesn't get lost in white noise. It doesn't fade into, you know, a jarbled mess of different people's thoughts, emotions, attention span, intention, you know, intentions. Because in New York City, there's a lot of noise. And I don't mean literally, I mean metaphorically, right? In quotations, there's a lot of noise. And you know when you can hear a pin drop in a silent place? You hear the entire length of that individual sound. I'm saying the same thing applies to thought. In my experience, since being in a place with less people, I'm able to see the end to end, to bookmark my thought all the way through to the point where it starts to get weaker and fizzle out into nothingness. Whereas I had abrupt changes in my thoughts because of stimulus coming through in New York City. Yes, yes. And when you're surrounded by more people, the conversation, the topics change really rapidly. So you never actually get to, uh, you know, one of the things I love about this podcast is it's just two people talking and we tend to stick on one topic just one topic for the duration of the hour or so that we're on here. And this is actually how you solve problems because you can't solve any problem in your life surrounded by a bunch, like too many people. And then you're constantly jumping from topic to topic within five minute intervals. Like you're not, you're not solving anything in that Mm -hmm. way. But if you actually want Mm -hmm. to solve major issues and major problems in your life, have one person that you're talking to, or that one person could even be yourself if there's no one, if you can't find a second person, and really just train your mind to just constantly wrestle with that one issue and stop getting distracted and stop, stop, stop letting other conversations and other topics take over and just finish it. And I, the one word I'm really hating, and this is a New York word, I, every job interview I've always heard this is, oh, you need to multitask. I'm like, no, 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 don't, don't you dare use the word multitask. I'm a single task and I do my single task straight up and straight and, 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 and well, and that, that, that's what we need to kind of get back to. Bravo that more people need to be single task. Yes. You know, and I I ask myself, how can I be more single task? How can I do less, but better? Yeah. Because we're always throwing so many different complex problems. I just, I get shifted. I, I start getting distracted from my primary purpose. Mm -hmm. And then all this time goes by. And what happens is I feel a tremendous sense of shame and guilt because I wasn't like, you know, Batman in the bottom of a pit being told I can't climb out. No one has ever, you know what I'm saying? Like that's <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. maybe my delusional fantasy, but you know, it's like one track mind, right? Like Batman, like one track mind, you know, we all think that we need to do that in order to achieve greatness. And I think that there is a truth towards trying to have one thing done well, but the world is constructed in a way that doesn't always allow us to do that. So it's almost like a, a monk approach, right? It's almost like a monastic approach towards yeah. life. Yeah. Whereas the things have this inherent quality that you can't really define. And honestly, no one needs to share. Like no one needs to be part of that because that's just adding another complexity. No, it's just simple. It's just you. It's your thoughts. It's your singular experience because your reality is only coming out of your own head anyway. So what does it matter if it's shared or someone else is there with you? Be great. Be a wonderful add-on, but that's Mm -hmm. not the purpose. The purpose is to have the singularity. Yes, yes, yes. And it's like, I I just want to make it clear, like, I don't think these people are intentionally trying to derail you. Maybe some are, but but I think that it's just that you have a plethora of options. And, you know, I'll I'll tell you, this is the last thing before we move on. 
when I was a kid, I used to love a place called Sizzler and Sizzler is a buffet, right? And I would be like, oh my God, I get to eat like fried shrimp. I mean, I used to go crazy at Sizzler because they had- Sounds like and- a strip. It sounds like a stripper spot. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, where are you going with this, buddy? You know, it's funny. They used to have actually in, in the Sizzlers that I went to in Queens, they had these like golden poles everywhere. So it kind of, <laughs> kind of, I think you might actually be onto something. Um, but I, I used to love Sizzler because I was like, oh my God, I get to have all this food. But now that I'm older, I realize it at, when you actually are eating steak, fish, and shrimp all at the same time, it, each one of those food items loses its taste. You actually taste the steak a lot less. You taste the shrimp a lot less because your, your, your senses are, are just being overwhelmed at that point. Fine dining consists of having like one entree, you know, and, and maybe a vegetable or something and really savoring that one taste. That's that's like a, a true dining experience, not just trying to like inundate the senses with too many darn things at once. And and I think that that's like a good way in which we approach people and a good way that we um, approach solving problems. OK, mm-hmm. thinking about this now and I'm. I'm you know, I'm also in my personal life, just thinking about leaving New York. I've lived here my entire life, you know, God bless this city. There's a lot of opportunities and wonderful people and wonderful things that I've had here. But I did, uh, you know, over the summer, I did have the opportunity to travel up to Maine. And I was very reflective about how I, I looked at people. And there's something about this. There's something about this when I was in Maine, when I was like riding, we rented bikes, my girlfriend and I, when we were riding around, just seeing one dude on a bike in the distance, you actually really paid attention to that person. You really looked at them. You actually thought about them. Like, who is this guy? I wonder what he does for a living, you know, or, Mm. you know, he's wearing an odd, you know, an odd hat or whatever it is. And you really paid attention to people and you sort of cherished and valued their presence. Whereas when I walked down the streets of New York City, it, it's it's like it's almost as if like I'm not being a bad person. It's just like there's too many of you that I can't really cherish that one person off in the distance because you're just right. all up in my face and 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 my like I I can't cherish what's so plentiful but what what's so readily available. I would I'm gonna give a little New York secret. So people ask how do you not bump into each other when you're walking down the street? And the reality is is that you don't look at the person you're passing you look past the person you intend to walk through and people just open up. And I think just in terms of structural difference right there, there's your answer. We're not looking at people. We're not looking past them. This, whoa, whoa. Love that, man. That was brilliant, man. I've lived in New York my whole life, but your, your insight is, is, is magnificent. That's a magnificent insight. Uh, I'll give you an example of this. When I I visited um, a few years ago, I visited my uncle who lives in Charleston and Mm -hmm. I was at the checkout counter in one of these like little grocery stores. And the, the lady was like, Hey, how are you? Have a great day. Or just some friendly little um, cordial remark such as that. Right. And I was like, geez, how come the people here in Charleston say friendly things like that? Why do they say friendly things like, geez, have a nice day or the weather is nice out. Whereas in people, you know, when I go to the cashier in New York, they never say that to me. Is it that New Yorkers are just rude? What's going on here? And then it actually, now that you just mentioned what you just said about walking down New Yorkers in the street, it's because that cashier in New York sees too many damn people to actually have the time to say something nice to me. Like the cashier in New York just has too many bodies coming in. Right. And doesn't have a break. Whereas the, the cashier in Charleston probably has maybe like five, six, seven minutes of uninterrupted just standing there. And then when someone comes her way, she actually is like, oh, shoot, a new person, a new body. Let me, let, let me say something friendly. I certainly have the time to be friendly. I think that you hit the nail on the head in terms of, from my personal experience, what has been the single cause, uh, the single greatest cause of pain Mm -hmm. uh, in relationships in New York is because it's not necessarily rewarded in that city society to, to really like sit in a saddle for an extended period of time without, without any sort of additive, you know, it just, just to be and to just kind of remain, there's always this uh, need, this driver to get up and do something and to build something and to 
network and you know to throw back a drink and you know to meet up in a place and you know there's there's always that entrepreneurial jive but it it misses some magic to me and you know i also think it's part of the allure of artists in a city right there's something romantic like a diamond in the rough where you can imagine al pacino and robert de niro uh you know walking or you know who, who is uh, jenny from the block right they're just or madonna they're just or Basquiat. They're just floating through New York, these alternative beings that are the antithesis of what New York really is sometimes in all of its glory, which is just a constant pushing forward. But there's a magic mist in those that just sit and remain. And people in the country understand this. They may not understand the former, but they do understand the latter here. And there's a there's a transference of communication that way. And you know what's funny is that, I, or sad rather, is that you know the Madonnas or these like I think like Lower East type village types, they're actually a dying breed in the city, like because they mm. can't actually afford. Like the thing about the city is that yeah. you can't actually afford to live in the city if you're not living the hustle and bustle lifestyle. If you're not if you're not networking constantly and constantly being you know. And what it is is that. I think New Yorkers have this this misplaced sense in safety and numbers. Us New Yorkers think that, oh, well, you know, I have this vast network of friends. I have this vast network of, 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 of like people in my life. And it, it brings them a false sense of security. And hmm. what, I, what I challenge everyone to do is when you have a chance, go on Facebook and see who are really your knights? Who's really protecting your fortress here? If you look at your Facebook friends, guy I haven't talked to in five years, girl that I met once at a party. Uh, you know, if you go through your Facebook, if you go through your vast network, you're going to find that you don't have any knights. You don't have any vassals. You don't have any uh, great people protecting your fortress. You know, you, you have people right. that will just blow over the first sign of, of wind. And, and, and I right. think that that, like, it's like numbers will not bring you safety. Quality relationships is actually what brings you safety. Your quality relationships are actually the ones that are going to bail you out um, when you're in a tough time. It goes back to this. This I love this expression that's that's passing around with my, the people on the podcast. Is like your true friend will bring you chicken noodle soup when you're sick, and that that's mm -hmm. that's that's your army right there. Is that your true friend that is there with chicken noodle soup, not the 300 people on your Facebook? Right. That's the disillusionment of major cities. It's not even just uniquely New York. But there is this sort of, you know, I always imagine like, uh, you know how those those fast paced courtings of New York City and it's like cars, white lights, red lights. It always reminded me of 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 our like vascular system, mm, and wow. people are always on the move, right? It's like white and red blood cells pumping through the city like a heartbeat. Everyone's always on the move, so there's always this sense of like I can be doing something better or I could be doing something for myself. It's hard for people to, to, to sit in a comfortability in that way. And, you know, that was something that I struggled with. Now I have so many good friends in New York. Some of my best friends ever are in New York city, but there is a false sense of security to New York city. There is a fashion element towards the city. I, I didn't own in New York city. I don't, I don't have a asset in New York city, right? Like most New Yorkers, you rent because it makes way more sense. You're able to change locations. Yeah, you know, if you get a new job, which happens because you're in New York City to, to work your way up, then you need you need to uh, adjust which neighborhood you're in. For me now, I'm just thinking what my needs are, and I need exactly that. I need concrete things that I know I can point to that are mine: a house, a yard that is paid for. This is what I look forward to. And I think this sense, I don't want to say stationary, but there is a sense of groundedness, mm. like, a, uh, like a groundedness in the foundational elements of life that you don't get in New York. And it's a trade-off. You obviously get some amazing things in New York City. Like, let's not pretend it's a bad place to live necessarily. But in terms of exactly what you're talking about and, and having a vassal protecting your knighthood, to put it into that metaphor, <laughs> it's it's difficult to find someone who's willing to stay long enough for that. Yes, yes, and I I think I you've touched upon I, I think New Yorkers 
and I'm not trying to generalize here. And, and I think I have the right to say this. I've been, I, I grew up in Queens. I've lived here my whole life. So right. if anyone is allowed to throw shade on New York, it's me because I've been here my whole life. Right. I think that New Yorkers genuinely are not really all that comfortable in their own skin. And I think mm. that's kind of what makes them jump from place to place and from people to people is that it's not acceptable to be comfortable in your own skin. In, in Growing up in Queens, right? you're considered successful if you somehow migrate to Manhattan and live there, right? So we have this idea that like, it's not okay to stay in Forest Hills. It's not okay to stay in Queens. The goal of life is to become wealthy and then live in Manhattan in a, in a, in a in Tribeca or something like that. And this mm-hmm. is kind of in, like implanted in our, it gets implanted in our minds when we're young adults that like, that's the acceptable thing to do. But I actually find that to be highly pernicious because you're actually training people to think that their current environment and their their current living in an outer borough is somehow wrong or unacceptable and that they need they need to move to the the more wealthier or the more vibrant or the more fast moving part of the city and that's how they can and only then only when they live in Manhattan can they actually define themselves as, as successful so i think new york city basically teaches you to be insecure about yourself at all times Mm, wow. Yeah, that's a profound statement. I would definitely agree that there is an intentional psychology to the design of the society and the fabric of New York City. There is an intention behind it to keep people always progressively moving forward. And I think that there is both an added benefit and a cost to that. And depending on a person's personality, that might be better or worse. For me, at the moment, I am actually happy to not be in that environment, especially now during pandemic and lockdown, mm-hmm. when I have this constant bubbling up of, you should be doing this, you should be doing that, you should be doing this, you know, build this, build that, change that, grow here. And, you know, all of this sounds good because we have these amazing motivational videos we can find on Spotify that tell us, you know, you always got to be pushing the envelope. But really the truth <laughs> is, is being happy within yourself and fully aligned. And I don't care how you find that. It could be on the green every Sunday night, right? Or Sunday, you know, it could be uh, in the church. I don't care how you do it as a human being. Every human being operates with a higher frequency when they're in alignment. Yes, yes. And I, I, I think that you know, like we, 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 like we, we said that New York pushes us to move forward. I would argue that New York's idea of forward, it, for most people, it may not actually be forward because for me, um, you know, my podcast exists mostly at home, right? It exists like, like I, I do mo- my episodes are recorded at home. So my pathway of forwardness is actually remaining stationary in my house. So that's right. that's why I think New York has forward in, in the wrong sense because we think, oh yeah, I got on the train and then I traveled an hour here and there. And that's what we consider a busy day, right? So a New Yorker thinks that a busy day is an hour long, you know, Long Island Railroad trip over here and then going to Penn Station and then going here. And then, you know, we think of like the businessman, be like, oh yeah, 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 I was in Connecticut and then I went back here. I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, I don't care. You're just a little, you're, you're mm-hmm. just a little piece moving around a board. You're not actually getting anything done. You're just, you're moving around the board. You're swimming around the pool, but nothing is actually being accomplished. So I think we need to redefine what forward looks like because forward right. could actually be just sitting in one spot and getting something done. Well, it's interesting, you know, and you brought this to my attention. Forward may not be forward for the individual, but forward for the city. And that may be at your cost. Wow, I love that's that's amazing because it's like uh, it's this idea that like yes, we're making like New York City. It, one of the things that I learned in, in 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 urban policy is like New York's greatest allure is tourism, right? And and I think that we're all just little we're all just little gears in the system making New York seem spectacular. But in order to make New York seem mm. spectacular we actually have to sacrifice ourselves so that when the tourists come here, they're impressed and they're in awe and like, oh, what a fantastic place. We all have to sacrifice ourselves in order to get this giant machine to work. And it does work in, in, in impressing tourists and so forth. 
but you're right. You're, you're right, Alexander. Like we're sacrificing our individuality and we're sacrificing ourselves just so some tourists can come here and have a good time for a few days. And, you know, we're speaking on a generality, right? There's definitely those that have transcended these problems. A lot of them I'm friends with where they've crafted the most incredible life in New York City and they couldn't have done it anywhere else. And they are the most developed individuals I've ever met in New York City. And, you know, part of their gravitas is that they resisted the external pressures of what we're talking about here in the city in order to build themselves into this monumental individual. You know, as part of the heroism behind New York City, there is a heroic element to it because you know you're putting yourself into a box and you're going to pay a significantly higher amount of dollars to be there. And you're going to be dealing with structural problems, poor management of the city, aggressive people, the potential of crime, you know, the, the lack of health. And then, you know, the little the, the likelihood that you're running into a little bit more of a sycophantic uh, society structure. But, you know, through all that, people do an amazing job. Right. So it's like there's definitely people who do well there. But I agree in terms of the average individual, there is this hollowness because it's an abnormal place. Mm. You're, we didn't survive in a New York City to get where we are today to be able to build New York and now live in it. Right, right. That, that wasn't how we transcended problems as a species. It's far different. Sure, you could, you could point to Athens as like one of the major uh, original cities, but ancient Athens is nothing like London, is nothing like you know, Bangkok or Mexico City. That's madness. These places are mad. They're absolutely crazy. <laughs> you know, um, and there's again, there's a lot of value there. There's, there's a lot of appropriation of wealth. There's a lot of opportunity. Sure, but we're not talking about material opportunity. What we're defining is is an immaterial happiness. Yes. An immaterial alignment with life, and people get this misconstrued. And they see the lights of New York City and they see the excitement. And let me tell you, there is nothing like seeing New York City at night. But when you're there for 10, 15 years and you just feel disconnected, it might be because of the city. Yes, I, 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 I full heartedly agree. And I think that uh, to end off here, you know, so it, it kind of goes back to that adage that sometimes you feel your loneliest in a crowded room. And I, I think mm. that I think I think that phrase, you know, is a cliche, but it really speaks true. And I think it's a good metaphor for New York in many respects. Like you, you will, <clears throat> if you want to be surrounded by physical bodies, New York is your place. But if you don't want to feel alone, you may have to search elsewhere. Alex, thank you so much for being on the show today. Anytime, brother. This concludes the 75th episode of the Truth Island podcast. I'm Aaron Azrod.